Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. It is September 22nd, 2022, and we're starting Season 3 of the Low Level Hell Podcast. You may already tell some differences just by the intro, and you're going to see some differences based on the guests and the format of the interviews, but we're going to try something a little bit different, a little bit of change, variety being the spice of life. We're still going to talk about helicopters. We're still going to interview people who have done amazing and cool things, but we're also going to expand the aperture a little bit, talk to some different people about some different things. And you're going to see that starting here today with my guest, Ward Carroll, who goes by Mooch. He spent 20 years in the United States Navy as an F-14 Rio, that's a radar intercept officer, and we'll talk a little bit about that here in the interview. But after retirement, he did a few other things and then started a YouTube channel where he talks about naval aviation history and uh, keeps up with current events, particularly right now, the war in Ukraine. He and I have become acquainted, funny enough, playing video games, so I had him come on to the show and talk a little bit about what he knows about Ukraine and the air war there in particular. I was fascinated to kind of take a look at what's been going on, since it's something that uh, I don't think many of us were prepared to see again uh, quite at the scale that we're seeing. I will apologize in advance if you come across any sort of inconsistencies in the interview. I haven't actually edited the interview yet as I'm recording this, just based on my schedule with work. Uh, But we did have a few technical difficulties. I think about five times we got disconnected, so I'm going to have to do some fancy editing to put it all together. It should should flow together fine, but there may be just some, some changes in tone that don't sound natural, so you'll understand that uh, if you come across any of them. Uh, but without further ado, we'll get into our interview with today's guest, episode 31, Ward Carroll. Red Knight Slasher 02 copies, cleared to engage, danger close, within now 45 meters for friendly. So, what, I mean, what do you got, like, back there? Is this, is this like a... I'm looking at your room there, and I'm seeing kind of a slanted roof. Is this above the garage? Do you have, like, an extra room? This is my attic. Okay. Right? Um, so, I mean, I've got, you know, it's kind of cool. I mean, let me see if I can manipulate the thing here. So, Oh, yeah. you got plenty of space. You can yeah. see, um, including my sim pit over there in the corner. Oh. Right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this is my man attic. This is where I hang. Yeah. It's now also my, you know, I mean, it has been my office, but this is this is where I spend all my time now. You yeah. Know, I, I go days and never leave the house. Yeah. Yeah, that's nice. You've got a nice little studio set up. I, I have a shed in the backyard that I've basically converted into my man cave because I don't have space oh, in my house. I got, I got four kids, yeah. so... I have no yeah. room whatsoever. So it, it's an absolute mess. It doesn't look that bad in person, but on camera, it looks absolutely just messy. But I, I need to move stuff around because I've got like my cool military stuff, but you can't see it on camera. You just see all my junk. So yeah, I need to, I need to do some. Well, stuff. since I, you know, I, I I had a cool office at the Naval Institute, which is over on the Naval Academy grounds, 
And so I took all my I Love Me stuff. Um, and now you can see I have some of my squadron plaques where they weren't yeah. before. I had the Beatles pictures there before. And the Beatles have been moved down out of the camera, um, <laughs> which is kind of a, a superstitious thing for me. I, I, those are the, I don't know if you're a Beatles fan, but in the White Album originally, they had mm. four, you know, four portraits of the Beatles. And those have been in every bedroom slash office I've had since I was nine years hmm. old. Wow. Um, so I, I kind of like to have those things up. So they're, they used to be in the field of view and now they're not. Um, but I have some other stuff and all the photos, the frame photos, um, are in storage now. I had my, I love me while at the Naval Institute was very impressive. It was, it was, <laughs> you know, people would come in just to kind of, they bring, friends in like just to go picture by picture and um you know kind of walk around what i what i had posted there but anyway now that i don't have that office um you know now i've sort of added to my warmth here you know so i like it i mean i have no problem you know just hanging out here for a long time well the problem too i think with a long career in the military is you get so much stuff I mean, I have gobs of stuff that I have nowhere to put it. It's just a stack of plaques and all kinds of stuff, you know, and then you just kind of go right. through. You're like, well, this one means something to me. This one, eh, I don't care. Yes, um, yes, yeah. right. Wall That's space a is point. a premium. Yeah. And and I don't know about your wife. My wife is not a fan of me putting it up anywhere else in the house. Like, she doesn't want, you know. <laughs> My wife is on the exact same page. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a few that are kind of like sort of elegant and artsy. It's like, okay, that one we can put in the hallway, you know, but, uh, yeah, random, random stuff. Not so much. Yeah. So but, my wife's dad was a A6 pilot. So she's kind of done with naval aviation. So she, oh, yeah. she's not impressed. <laughs> that makes sense. So I see you've got a lot of guitars back there though. You're in, in yeah. So I, I, I've been a rock and roller since I was seven. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, Les Paul, uh, a Rick MG 620 and a Taylor acoustic. I'm actually in a band. Um, in fact, really? we, have a show on, we have a show on Saturday night down in uh, Southern Maryland. Yeah, this band's been around for 20 years. Um, Holy cow! Yeah, and we're 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 good. I mean, it's not just a dad band, uh, <laughs> you know. So um, four piece rock cover band. In fact, we did a show here in Annapolis during the summer. It was Mucha Palooza. I did I did a gathering of my patrons in YouTube subscribers and it was a smash it was at a club here in in uh, annapolis right downtown and it was a blast um so we play quarterly we used to play nearly every weekend when i lived down in southern maryland um, but now everybody's too busy and you know we don't want it to dominate our lives we just want it to be a nice yeah. value added so yeah wow. so right you just play guitar or you you sing too or I, i'm one of the two singers Okay. Two screamers. Um, and, uh, yeah, I have, I have a decent voice and, and, uh, I'm the rhythm slash lead and our lead player is another retired jet pilot or jet aviator, a guy named Ed Gassy. He was a test pilot. Um, and he's fantastic. I mean, he's, he's, he's great at improvisation and, and, uh, he's my music soulmate. We did an acoustic thing a duo, a duet, um, when I was living down near him um, for many years. And, and so, 
Yeah, it's it's fun. And in fact, we got practice tonight. Our last uh, sort of rehearsal before the show on Saturday. So we're kind of spread out like 70 miles from north to south. We practice halfway at the drummer's house where we've practiced basically forever. Um, and, uh, you know, it's quite a footprint now. Our new bass guitarist lives by me, which makes which biases us north, which is good. Um, but the other guy lives down basically near Pax River, near the air station mm. at Pax River um, in Leonardtown, where I used to live. And now we move back up here. When I went from military.com to We Are the Mighty about 10 years ago, we moved back up here um, and uh, been here ever since. So, you know, it's great. But, yeah, that's a long answer for I love I'm a musician. I love this Marshall. It's a it's a the small half stack. So it's a two by 12 instead of a four by 12. Um, and the head is a 20 watt instead of a 50 or 100 watts. So this is a set it and forget it uh, rig. And I've been through every amp you can name. I also have a cool pedal board, which I don't know if you can see. Um, oh, yeah. Right. Um, and I've reduced it to just five pedals, including a tuner. So I'm simplifying things. Um, I used to have a massive pedal board. Um, I used to have a full stack just for the look. I thought it was cool. We, yeah. we play small clubs, and this, <laughs> this stack, it looks kind of ridiculous, like very spinal tapish. Yeah. Um, and it was plus, you know, we're finished at like two in the morning, and then we got it. We don't have roadies. Yeah. So we got to carry the stuff back out. <laughs> and I'm like, this is stupid. And so I got this rig, which is great. So anyway, yes, these are guitars. I'm, I love music, it's a big part of me. Um, I've tried to blend music with the channel in, in sort of ways that aren't too obnoxious. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you get to play like when you're in the Navy? I mean, I imagine space at a premium. Did you get to bring like a guitar with you on the carrier and things like that? Yes. Yes. Always. Yeah. So I'd, I'd yeah. have um, uh, usually an electric and a little amp and uh, some recording gear. We had a four track recorder. There was a tape machine. Um, and we and used to do recordings and I, I was in, you know, in the squadrons, um, we'd have bands sometimes, um, oh, you really? know, if, if you had a drummer and a bassist and, and you'd put a band together and basically just do squadron parties or whatever. And that was more of a, just a joke kind of thing. It wasn't serious. Sure. But when I got out, I was like, you know, cause I'd been in bands since sixth grade, even at the Academy, I was in bands there. Um, and so when I got out and it's like, oh, now I don't have to move every two or three years. Um, I put this band called Miles from Clever is our name together. And, and there was a community down there at Pax River of musicians. Um, so I found basically the best drummer and uh, a bass player, not the best bass player. <laughs> and eventually we, he, he fell out and we got a local guy from Southern Maryland. Um, but he wasn't perfect and so when the band uh, sort of fell apart just before covid and i moved up here to annapolis um we kind of went on hiatus and when we got kind of everybody you know migrates back together <clears throat> we're kind of going okay if we're going to put this back together i want it to be perfect so it literally took us two years to find a bass player turns out bass players are hard to find 
Hmm. Um, so uh, what we have now is is perfect. I mean, you're a busy guy then because you've got the channel, you've got the band. I mean, what else do you work on? Um, I'm I'm writing a fourth punk novel, um, and uh, that's that's another thing. And you know, the enterprise of being a YouTuber is more than just making YouTube episodes. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's also um, the care and feeding of my Patreon patrons. Yeah. Uh, who are supporters that, you know, give some uh, amount of it varies from a dollar to a hundred dollars a month um, to support my efforts for which I'm very grateful, but there are benefits of being a patron. I do a newsletter and we do a Friday happy hour on zoom that always turns out to be fun. And people beam in from all the way from New Zealand to England to Germany yeah. and all over America. So that takes, that's a, that's a time, you know, time demand there um and uh just the the other parts of creating episodes you know and so plus i'm a husband i'm not i am a father but my my sons are long gone out of the house you know they're in their 30s uh so i'm actually a grandfather now so you know i i, I that comes first um also my wife and i uh, like to do dog uh, things. We have two German wirehead pointers that are both involved in dog shows, the kind you think of, and also this dog dock diving, which is a lot of fun. What? Um, yeah. So there's a, there's actually a canine sport called dock diving, and there's a regulation ramp and pool and and that kind of thing, and they do basically long jumps, and they get you know, you measure it and that's the competition. So, um, oh, so they're not measured on form or anything. It's just pure. No, distance. Form is not <laughs> I have one dog okay. that has great form and one that's kind of sloppy. Um, <laughs> the, but uh, that's that I will be honest is a lot more fun than the, the beauty pageant dog shows. Right. Yeah. Cause it's objective. Sure. There's no subjectivity, no subjectivity to it. So we really started getting to get into that. So, that's generally, uh, you know, a day, if not a whole weekend to do those things. So, you know, I, I yes, I'm busy, but I'm living my best life for yeah. sure. I live in my favorite town, <clears throat> you know, um, Annapolis, where I went to school and taught here. And, you know, if I had a hometown, I mean, I'm a Marine Corps kid, um, so I moved all over the place. But if I had a hometown, it would be Annapolis. And so now I live here right near the Naval Academy, near the football stadium. I ride my bicycle to football games. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I got a pretty good life. Yeah. How many years did you do in the Navy? Uh, right at 20. You know, I, okay. I here, let me clear my throat. <clears throat> um, you know, I was class of 82 out of the Academy um, and uh, retired poetically enough Teaching at the Naval Academy was my last tour, uh, basically 20 years after I was commissioned. So you were a Rio, which is a radar intercept officer. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. What what is what does that do? Like I, I have a general understanding, but uh, I mean for listeners, what what is exactly does a Rio do? So it, the the actual role of the Rio changed over the life. Of, or mm. let me just say, grew over the life of the F-14. Mm. So, and in fact, the Rio designation 
was basically inaccurate towards the end of the Tomcat's life. We should have been called at that point what backseaters in the Super Hornet are called now, which is a weapons system operator, WIZOs. Um, so the acronym RIO was a holdover from F4 days. Okay. Uh, the F4 Phantom, which was used both by the well Air Force, Marine Corps, and and Navy. And uh, so I was in the rear cockpit of a tandem cockpit configuration. So I sat behind the pilot. And my basic duties at the beginning of my time in F-14s were talk on the radios. I had control of two of the three air-to-air missiles. Tomcat hmm. had Phoenix, Sparrow, and Sidewinder. So I controlled basically Phoenix and the long-range Sparrow. The pilot would probably shoot a more close-range Sparrow. And then the pilot controlled the Sidewinder, which was the short-range heat-seeking missile. And the Tomcat had a gun, which I could get the pilot a radar lock, which would give him better symbology in his heads-up display. But the gun was a pilot weapon. Um, And I was responsible for the navigation picture. I was responsible for the intercept, so I'd work the AUG-9 radar system to paint a picture and to coordinate with however many wingmen we had, section or division of of Tomcats, basically the tactician, set up the intercept so we could do our beyond visual range timelines and fire the weapons at the appropriate time. And then I had a co-pilot responsibility in the visual arena. So the visual arena could either be dogfighting. And so if the pilot's looking at somebody in front of him, I would be scanning behind the wing line to make sure nobody's rolling in on us as we're trying to kill somebody else. And that was a real lifesaver at times. Or in the landing pattern, I would be a co-pilot and give him whatever information he needed in a timely fashion uh, to turn an average landing into a great landing, right? To turn a fair pass into what we call an okay pass. So a lot of duties and I had a great time. The Navy was very good to me in that basically all I did was be in fighter squadrons aboard aircraft carriers or based at the Naval Air Station at Oceana in Virginia Beach. And then as I described, my last tour was teaching at my alma mater, the Naval Academy, uh, which was a lovely pivot into my post-Navy life because I finished, I didn't start Punk's War there, but I did finish it there and it was published by the time I I retired. And that very much changed the trajectory of my post-Navy life. So, yeah, I don't want to talk about that, but uh, to kind of go back to the Rio and the Wizzo and all this stuff, what you, you, you described it changing. What In the tail end of your career, how had that sort of morphed? Like, like what caused the change in the Rio's duties? The air-to-ground mission. So okay. as I've described in several episodes of the channel, when I talk about <clears throat> the history of the F-14, Early on, pure air-to-air, because the threat mandated a very robust air-to-air look. And, and the Soviet Union had bombers and had you know bombers with long-range air-to-surface missiles that we had to defend the carrier from, and that was the core mission of the F-14. 
in the early days. That's why it was built. But also they had, <clears throat> excuse me, my, <clears throat> my throat is, <clears throat> but also, I know this is going to be a post-production bitch. <laughs> No, I'm going to leave it all in. <laughs> okay, <laughs> <and> all. <laughs> yeah, Fantastic. Um, but also, but also the Soviet Air Force had great fighters, you know, so we'd train against MiG-21s and 23s and 25s, and then later the MiG-29. So the air-to-air world was a viable threat. Then as the Iron Curtain fell, Soviet Union went away. We had, and budget pressure being what it is, the A6 Intruder, which was a dedicated bombing platform, went away. So the situation mandated that the F-14 become an air-to-ground airplane, as well as retain the air-to-air mission. So basically, we came at, we became a strike fighter. And... The bombing capability, the dumb bombing capability of the F-14 was always resident. It always had a panel called the called the AUG-15 panel in the rear cockpit and weapon stations where you could put Mark 80 series bobs and HUD symbology for air to ground. But we never used it. It was never like unlocked. And so early 90s, boom, all of a sudden we're doing... You know, we're hurling ourselves at the ground at 30 degrees, 45 degrees. Rios had to get smart on the AUG-15 panel, something we never touched, you know, for the first basically, you know, 20 years of the airplane's history. Yeah. And so this was fine. And that was an interim solution. But the Tomcat was not a terribly accurate dumb bomber. The Hornet is a one mil bomber in terms of dispersion. The Tomcat is a 10 mil bomber. Mm. And so, in fact, the one mission that the Tomcat was given in Bosnia to do some dumb bombing uh, was sort of a disaster in terms of where the bombs went. Fortunately, uh, there was no collateral damage. And the Joint Task Force was like, okay, you guys are done. <laughs> we're not, we're not <laughs> doing any Tomcat. <laughs> Dumb bombing. So, but we had that capability in the event that, you know, the bubble went up. Yeah. Yeah. Fast forward three or four years. Now, the fighter wing, smart folks, a couple lieutenants, and the fighter wing commander at that time was the legendary Snort Snodgrass, who was killed in a private airplane mishap last summer. Uh, but they had this idea of putting a lantern pod or at least half of the lantern system, the targeting pod on the F-14. They had to do some things in terms of allowing the digital pod to talk to the analog F-14. They did some brilliant workarounds um, and it worked. So now almost with the flick of a switch, you made the F-14 into the nation's premier strike fighter and the Rio truly became a weapon system officer. The display in the back seat went from this round tactical information display to this rectangular 10 by 10, well, that's square, 10 by 10, high-res digital display. And I had another stick in the back seat for controlling the lantern pod, where it would look when the laser would fire, all that stuff was controlled from the rear cockpit. So this was a game changer with a capital G, capital C. 
and the Tomcat was given the most important high-vis strike missions from that point through the end of its life in 2006. So that's what I mean when I say I went from pure air-to-air responsibilities to 80% delivery of precision-guided munitions and then 20% work in the radar for the air-to-air arena at the end of the life of the F-14. Why, why was it such a, I mean, what was the problem with it being a dumb bomber? Like you said, the 10 mil, it just wasn't good at what, I mean, it's more than training. I mean, what was wrong? I say wrong. What was wrong with the aircraft that it, that it couldn't be very accurate? Yeah. So I, I think it's just the system, hmm. you know, so the, the way that the HUD symbology and like, you know, there were the, the constant, aim point and then the 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 sort of fixed aim point so one of them depended on the g you know so you'd designate the target and then do a smooth 3g pull and the aug 9 would figure out when the bomb should come off based on the pull okay so that was sort of not all 3g pulls are created equal (laughs) so in the case of this bosnian mission the pilot was kind of, you know, excited. So he he did a sort of impulse pull, put the stick in his lap, and the bomb just slung way, <laughs> way far. Right? Not not where the computer was thinking it would go. So okay. that that variable could affect I mean I had some guys, in fact I just saw one of the guys who was a really accurate bomber, a guy named Yarko Sasa, just saw him out at the Taylor Convention in Reno last week for the first time in years. He was dead eye, you know, and and uh, so there were some guys that just like you take a, you know, a, a shotgun or not a shotgun, you take a rifle, and, and some guys are really accurate, and other guys not yeah. so much, you know, with the same rifle. And uh, but if you took the same pilot, put him in a Hornet, and their HUD symbology, they call it a death death dot. So wherever you put the crosshairs, yeah, the bomb was going to hit that. Right, and that's not that wasn't the case in the F-14. So I guess the short answer would be it's, it was just the system. Sure. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So it's not a it's not a mechanical thing, or the aircraft's not stable or something. It's it's calculations and and things like that. Yes. That makes sense. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So what what kind of laser guided uh, munitions did you guys drop? Just like the uh, what, the five hundred pounders, or it was a variety of things. Variety of things. Um, you know everything from. Uh, 500 pounders to 2000 pounders, the GBU tens, mm. um, which were, you know, pretty awesome, you know? Uh, and, uh, then later the airplane could actually carry JDAM at the very end of its, of its life. Um, and, uh, but for my, my, the bulk of my time using liner and pot, it was, it was the, the, the GBUs. Uh, and this is when we were doing Operation Southern Watch, the patrolling in the no-fly zone over southern Iraq. And occasionally they would, you know, threaten to use their SAM sites. So we'd hard kill SAM sites with GBUs in company with prowlers that were jamming those sites. Um, and and it was an effective weapon. I mean, it, it, it just was amazing. And if you look at the footage um, around enduring freedom or Iraqi freedom, 
of the lantern footage. It's, it's, you know, point it dies. And, uh, mm. it's also very precise, precise, right? That's the point. So if you just want to take out that thing and not have the frag hit the unintended target next to it because of the optics and 24 hour news cycle, all the other things you didn't want to do when you're trying to win hearts and minds. Yeah. Obviously this means you're going to use a GBU 12 instead of a 10, you know, smaller boom, if that's the case. And you could change the fusing to make sure it goes through the external part and doesn't blow up until it's inside. All of this stuff was within our capability now. And the stuff we'd sneered at when we were these knights of the air, just pure <laughs> fighter guys, now suddenly we embrace, and it turns out we're pretty good at it. Yeah. So that's what makes the Tomcat, among the things that makes the Tomcat an amazing airplane, is the way it morphed over its life so dramatically and so effectively. It was very lethal, may, maybe more lethal than ever at the end of its life than it was at the beginning of its life. And it's rare you find a platform that's around for more than three decades that, that that's the case. No, that's interesting. I, I had no idea that it had the capability to drop bombs even before. You know, I'm a child of the 80s. Top Gun, obviously, that's my exposure to the F-14, and they didn't. There wasn't a moment of you know air to ground in in that. Um, which it's interesting that that kind of became the focus of Top Gun Two to kind of show you know where we've come with sort of air power and sort of priorities. Because you bring up a good point too, the Cold War and just the worrying about swarms of MIGs and big bombers and stuff. And now it's you know precision, you know munitions on on targets and stuff. But uh, yeah, I had no idea that it could drop bombs. Uh, I always, I always pictured it just as a as a missile carrier, you know, just taking Phoenix missiles out there and doing its business. Yeah, that was its initial utility, um, but it, yeah. it definitely, in fact, at the end of its life, there were no Phoenix missiles. That was defunded hmm. in lieu of this lantern capability. You know, I had to make some choices. Sure. Um, this is again on Snort's watch. They're like, okay, what do you want? You know, N98, yeah. the Air Warfare Directorate. It's like, we got X number of dollars, Snort. You know, you tell us what you want. He's like, I want Lantern. And he was obviously prescient in making that call in the mid-90s because these the Tomcat was very much used post-9-11. Yeah. You know, that was your deep strike suddenly because Hornets couldn't go that far. Hmm. You know, and they had tankers, but not unlimited tankers. So you needed yeah. an airplane that could go farther and loiter longer, and that was the F-14. Okay, interesting. So talking about air war, and that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about because I know you've you've put a lot of time and energy into to reading about it, keeping up with it. You know, we've got the war in Ukraine that's been going on for for much longer than I think Russia planned, um, and we're seeing just a ton of air to air air to ground surface to air i mean what's your initial i mean i mean what just give me your thoughts like what's going on with with all the air like is, did you expect to see this much activity when all this started no i i like most of us thought that in the event so a i was surprised that russia invaded um mm -hmm. i was yeah. on air sure <laughs> you know at, at when the olympics were happening and saying no no way it's not gonna you know there's no way they would XXX. And so that shows you what I know. And then <laughs> once they stepped off the line of departure, uh, 
I was unimpressed by the Russian military prowess. They're, they're, they, and this is across the board, you know, ground, sea, and air. And so that's part A. Part B, I've been very impressed with the Ukrainian military's performance and obviously the attitude and the, the sort of atmospheres created by President Zelensky. You know, I know there's a lot of people going into the world like he's a lightweight, he's a comic, you know, right. he'll, he'll flee as soon as Putin sneezes and it hasn't gone down like that. So in a military area, I'm the air war started with a lot of sort of visual arena dogfights. And we, we saw yeah. footage shot from the ground. It was sort of battle of Britain. Yeah. It didn't seem like anybody had much GCI ground control going on. It was sort of like, just get a tally and, and get a quick shot and then get out of there. Uh, you know, I was a big fan and was criticized for jumping on the ghost, ghost of Kiev legend because it seemed viable to me in that environment that one kick-ass Ukrainian pilot in a MiG-29 would launch, get some quick kills, because the MiG-29, if, if it's in and out of burner, is only going to stay airborne for about a half hour without yeah. externals, and they didn't have externals. So land, put on some more you know, air-to-air weapons, go out and kick-ass some more. That kind of thing seemed doable to me. Yeah. Um, and that did happen, although the ghost of Kiev fable was disproved by the Ukrainian Air Force themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they were like, please stop because it's not helping anymore. You know, I think at first it was sort of a morale builder. <laughs> and right. I don't know if they're talking to me specifically, uh, but they're like, <laughs> hey, please just knock it off. So I did an episode, you know, OK, Ukrainian Air Force says it's not true. So it's not true. But they are still kicking ass. And I'm about to post an episode that's an update with my good friend David Axe, who's an expert on the war in Ukraine. And he points out that they're using SU-24s six and a half months into the war, and they're flying sorties. So what we know is at the beginning of the war, they had 12 up SU-24s. Eleven of them were either damaged beyond repair or shot down. So basically they had one working SU-24. But because at the fall of the Soviet Union, when Ukraine split off, they had a whole bunch of surplus airplanes and they have like a preservation facility, kind of like our boneyard, except Ukraine is sort of a high humidity place. It's not like the Arizona desert. So it's more problematic leaving airplanes or any machinery out in the open. However, they have remanufactured apparently because they're flying some of these SU-24s. So it just shows you the innovative nature and the resilience and how industrious the Ukrainian people are and their military is. So this is basically my main takeaway from the war is this Leviathan, this, this first world power this, that was supposed to just roll over them in days has been brought to its knees and is now retreating out of the yeah. Donbass. <clears throat> we'll see how long it takes. Obviously, winter is 
is looming. Winter is coming, as we say, <laughs> um, you know, in Game of Thrones. Uh, and uh, so that's going to put everything on a pause until things start to freeze over. But the Ukrainian military is on the march, particularly in the Northeast. And this is a function of the Russian military is at parade rest. There are no reserves. They've had, they've had to do all kinds of weird stuff in terms of recruiting and tricking people and hiring, um, you know, all kinds of <clears throat> um, contractors like the Wagner Group, you know, these mercenary armies yeah. and Cossacks. I mean, there's some awesome images. I entreat the listener to check out the Cossack, you know, headgear is amazing. These guys are cool looking. <laughs> But they're getting their ass kicked, right? right? And so the third tank brigade and all the other elite Russian forces, Spetsnaz, are gone. And and so, again, on paper, going into this invasion, we're like, Spetsnaz alone is going to just take them down. Right. You know, and then a couple of SU-25 sorties and a few MiG-35s, and we're done. Right. But that's not at all the way this has gone down. So this is a lesson for all of us in terms of, uh, you know, train like you fight and, and numbers aren't everything. Right. This is as we talk about China, the biggest Navy in the world, numbers wise. Um, right. But you look at the capability of a carrier strike group versus any of their jump jet uh, air wings that can do. 300 sorties in three weeks, we can do 300 sorties in a day, literally. Um, you know, so, you know, we, this is where planners and budgeteers and, you know, it, it comes down to capability and, and doing training that actually is going to be, uh, that, that's going to work, you know, and, uh, we're all our own worst critic with respect to that. Um, and that's a yeah. different subject, but basically, uh, <clears throat> you know, I've been really impressed, and the war is ongoing. It's not over. But as we're speaking, the Ukrainian military is, is, is on the move, and uh, the uh, Russian army, which is a cobbled-together group of, you know, uh, mercenaries and conscripts and other oldsters. I mean, they're, they're getting people that are my age to, to, you know, they've eliminated the age restriction on recruits. There's no restriction. So yeah. if you're like at home and you're sick of, you know, your babushka yelling at you, you're like, I'm going to the war. <laughs> right. And they can, they're going to go Roger that here's your one week rifle training course. And then you're on the front line in the Donbass. That's how it's going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems like a cautionary, like you said, it's a cautionary tale of believing your own hype. Because it seemed to me that the the strategy here was because Russia spent a lot of time over the past few years telling everyone how great they are, right? They they've kind of just built themselves up to be this thing, and then they've had some success uh, through uh, really the psychological side of things. Um, and it felt to me like they were just kind of rolling in, like it was it was preordained, like we're gonna roll in and you're gonna get scared and you're gonna give us what what we want. And then that didn't work. And it's like, well, shit, like, okay, now our stuff's not working the way that we thought it would. And this is not going well. That, that was my sense uh, of. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it was terrible time. I think I was three three days away from retiring when they invaded. So that was like the worst time possible cause that you want a war to kick off is when you're, you're days away from getting your clearing papers and, and being done. But um, I was actually uh, I was in a course. I guess about two weeks after I retired, I went down to uh, to do a course for the FAA, and there was like five Russian airline pilots in this class. Um, and it was really interesting to to talk to them, you know, because one, they were like, I don't know if I'm going home. Like, I, you know, I don't know what's what's going to happen if I can even get home. But, you know, just their thoughts. And of course, they're in they're in America. They're probably not going to speak too highly of the invasion, but they all seemed very much against the whole thing. And so that's an interesting thing to watch as well is like in general, it seems like the Russians, you know, as a people, not not a fan of this. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to see the fallout as that continues because it's been pretty pretty wild so far. Right, right. I mean, that that's what we all wonder. We're like, there's no way that they can be into this, right? There's no way yeah. the populace is supporting this. I've seen some. In fact, I did an episode about uh, the locals in western Ukraine that have a history of, and, and they still remember, they're only one generation removed from what the Nazis, what the Third Reich did to their grandparents. Yeah. Uh, so they're very pro- aggression because it's been briefed to them as we're rooting out Nazis. And, and so they believe, you know, there's only one station, uh, never mind that they have a choice. There's only one station. This station's broadcasting Russian propaganda. So they have a very pro, this is what we got to do attitude. But there are other parts of the country, particularly the urbanites around Moscow that you would Got to think that, you know, they're in touch with the Western world and they have friends. And like you're saying, these airline pilot, you know, trainees like, yeah, this is this is not good because suddenly it's not cool to be Russian in the world, you know, (laughs) and they were starting to build their brand in a good way. And and then suddenly it's back to, uh, you know, Stalin-esque kind of behavior. So nobody's digging that. But I, I don't know. You know, this is what is hard to know about the politics and the dynamic within Russia. You know, Putin is certainly not going to give up anytime soon. We're always sort of prognosticating about what's Putin's exit ramp. And anybody who's yeah. smart is like, he doesn't take exit ramps, you know, right. and so that's not a thing. Yeah. Well, one thing, too, was interesting, just kind of as an aside with Putin. One of those pilots in that class, he, I think we we were talking about it on break or something, and he started talking about Putin having body doubles, and he's like, yeah, we can tell, like when there's a guy on TV, you know, it's not him, and he started pointing out these different things, and I thought that was interesting too. But yeah, I, I'm, you bring up a good point. Like he doesn't he doesn't normally take the exit ramp because he's he's been successful, but at the same time, like this is not success, and at some point the party's going to end. So how does it end? And that's, I think we're all bracing for that one. Well, it's never clean. I mean, this yeah. is what happens with a dictator with totalitarian. There's not a peaceful transfer of power. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, we won't get into politics, but th- this is why some people are concerned about the way that it went down for us. Is this the yeah. beginning of that kind of thing? Um, and so, however, the end of the Putin regime happens, it's going to be bloody. You know, yeah. I, I recommend if folks haven't seen the Death of Stalin movie, that is such a 
a tutorial in Russian politics. Plus, it's kind of funny in a dark humor kind of way. Um, so if you haven't seen that movie, check it out. Okay. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Did you ever have a chance to sort of mess around with Soviet era aircraft? Did, did you ever get any, any experience with them? Yes, yes. We we used to have a program called Constant Peg, which um, again, I mean, I'll reference episodes of the channel, but sure. uh, we had some, and this is before this was a you know a known thing. This was a super secret black program. We had. Um, some airplanes that were obtained through various means. Um, some of them were third party countries like Pakistan, or we'd get word that one crashed but wasn't destroyed. So we'd go, you know, CIA technicians would go and get it, you know, kind of thing. And uh, we had, you know, some MiG 23s and some MiG 21s uh, in the desert in Tonopah. Uh, so Tonopah, if, you were, if that name sounds familiar, that's where the F-117 was test flown for a long time. It's an amazing place. So I got to fight uh, MiGs uh, around Tonopah during my first Fallon debt, and this is 1985, and a real eye-opener. Hmm. Was that pretty common for guys? Like, like did you guys... How, what percentage would you say of Rios and pilots got to actually do that kind of stuff? Um, back in those days, uh, most of us, when you'd go to Fallon, that was the job of this. It was the 4477th was the name of the squadron. Um, in fact, at Hook, I just ran into one of the guys, Streak Chanik, who went on to be an admiral. He was one of the uh, second generation of, of MiG pilots. So the ruse and your, your wife didn't even know what you were doing. Right. Hmm. So you'd move to Las Vegas and your spouse and anybody else thought you were stationed at Nellis Air Force Base. So you get up in the morning. Bye, honey. I'm going to go fly at Nellis Air Force Base. You know, <laughs> wink, wink. And you jump on an airplane and fly to Tonopah, which oh, was, wow. you know, several hundred miles north of, of Las Vegas, north of Area 51. Right. You know, because there's all these secret Groom Lake and all the other mysterious places north of, of Nellis Air Force Base. Yeah. Um, and, uh, in fact, I know you and I are both DCS guys. I just downloaded the Nevada Test Range map uh, yeah. module. It's amazing. It's very cool. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so you would fly against those guys, and if you're at Fallon, chances are you get to do that. So in the mid-'80s, uh, everybody was having a, a look at those airplanes. It was really cool. Yeah, so uh, you made me think about it while you were talking, because uh, I know the stories about how we, sometimes we get these aircraft, right? You got guys defect from Russia, you know, and they bring a MiG-29 or whatever, and um, or I think there was a, a Hind. I think we got access to a Hind because um, one got left behind in Chad, I think, or something, and so like CIA and guys went over and grabbed it. 
Um, did that ever? Did the opposite ever happen that you know of? Like, did did the Soviets ever get a hold of American aircraft? Um, that's a great question. I'm sure that they got some Vietnam era airplanes yeah. in the course of those wars. So they had F4s, they had B-52s, they had A4s, they had F-105s, all the 100 series. So that third generation technology they they had. Um, but I don't think they ever got it. I mean, there was this race to get the F-14 that fell off the side of an aircraft carrier and went to the bottom of the Atlantic uh, because it had Phoenix missiles on it. And oh, wow. we won that race, ultimately. Huh. Um, and that would have been a big deal had it fallen into their hands at that time. Uh, but beyond that, I, I don't think in modern days that they ever got, you know, things like a stealth fighter yeah. or – an F-22 or any of the airplanes that we would have cared about, um, right, you know, sure. kind of a thing. Um, I, I, I don't know if they ever got, you know, in your world, an Apache, you know, over the course of things going wrong in the Middle East, did they ever get their hands on, you know, some of the, the gee whiz stuff in the Apache, which might have exploited uh, their ability to to go against those those platforms? I, I don't know. Uh, but I don't think at, at at that they didn't have a flyable one, right? Right, um, and 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 so, you know, they would have had to take it from, um, you know, some some countries that that our partnership went poorly, like Iran. Right, because we had they had F-14s, right? They had F-14s, but they also had F-4s. You know, Vietnam era, um, when uh, you know. So I don't think so. I think the short answer is they didn't have the sort of robust look that we sure. had. Yeah. And then the curtain yeah, they comes more down. like specs. Yeah, and, and, and then the curtain comes down and everybody's flying against the East German or no, there's no East German Germany anymore. They're they're flying against the uh the MiG twenty nines out of Dechimamano. Right. And and that was cool yeah. at the time, you know, like, oh we're flying against MiG twenty nines, which was had a huge mystique. You know, we didn't know a whole lot about it, and, and they had forward quarters, you know, capability that we had to honor. So that, you know, we started doing some notch tactics and other things. Uh, basically not fun for Rios because you'd get to about 18 miles and you'd dump your radar picture and go into the 90, the beam for a few potatoes and then come back in, and the Rio would have to quickly attempt to be, rebuild the radar picture. It was very sporty. Uh, this is something that DCS Rios, you know, can replicate. It's it's hard in DCS as well, yeah. you know. So um, that was a function of the MiG twenty nine. Yeah, I've just um, I'd heard something somewhere where you know I don't know if it was a joke or what, but it was talking about you know all these people that have been uh, all these countries that have been buying Soviet era equipment for years. Now they're watching everything go on in Ukraine and they're like having buyer's remorse, you know, for for buying all this stuff. Well, I think their gear works if you maintain it. This is sort of a yeah. internal politics, internal uh, priorities uh, question, right? Yeah. I mean, Putin ignored the military uh, in in on his watch, yeah. uh, by and large. And, so what, and what do you mean by that? Like, in what way? He didn't fund it. You know, and, and so these are these the the they're poorly uh, paid, and they didn't have the maintenance accounts that you need to 
keep an Air Force going. The readiness isn't measured in ways that we do. And it was just basically, I don't want to hear anything wrong. Just do use what you got and make the best of it. And that won't work. And right. once you push play, you're like, now go fight the war. You see what happens. And so, again, on paper, an impressive force. And in reality, not so much. So this is kind of good for the U.S. military because you and I come from different branches, but we know we, we beat ourselves up more than anything else than any other foe in terms of is our training effective? Are we recruiting the right people? Are our budgets big enough for the, the high-end threat? I think the short answer in the wake of the Ukraine war and the Russian failure is whatever, we're, we're probably a lot better off than Russia with yeah. respect to these things. Um, and we measure the right things and our training is, and again, a lot of this is about prognostication. What do you think the threat's going to be? And sometimes we're wrong. History would show that we're wrong. Pearl Harbor. I mean, choose your fight, you know, but, um, I think in, in, in the wake of the asymmetric wars that were Iraq and Afghanistan, as we do this pivot to the high end fight and defense budgets are predicated against China's pacing threat <laughs> and our T and R matrices are adjusting all the time based on what do we think we're going to do off an aircraft carrier out of the garrison, out of the expeditionary base on day one. And that's a zero sum game, right? If you're training for a reconnaissance mission, you cannot train for a, strike mission and at the same time. So this calculus is always being adjusted. And I know there is some frustration that we don't have time to do everything. And they're like, this is supposed to be a multi-mission airplane, but I'm jack of all, master of none. There's some, if there's any criticism about what's happening around the Super Hornet world, it's that currently. Mm-hmm. But relative to what we're seeing from the Soviet or the Soviet, from Russia, I would say we're, we're in good shape. Yeah. Yeah, I think um we kind of joked about at the uh the Joint Readiness Training Center where it was one of my last assignments in military. You know, we we put guys up against these very this very tough adversary that's, you know, supposed to be a stand-in for Russia, China, you know, whatever that type of threat. And uh and, you know, now we're, we were kind of joking like, man, I feel like we were lied to. You know, like we were woefully, you know, overwhelmed by an enemy that that, that we would have clean their clocks but you know at the same time there's a there's a level of hubris that comes with that because how many of the russian leaders went into this saying oh we're gonna we're gonna walk over this so you, you definitely can't uh you know just take it for granted but well, you know you've touched on a Go this ahead. is Sun Tzu, right i mean this is just like yeah. Sun Tzu. Yeah. uh do not o- underestimate your your enemy and, and we yeah. have a tradition of doing that we underestimated the insurgency we underestimated yeah. um you know what we we'd see well, actually, we overestimated the Iraqis in Desert Storm, which was proved to be a smart idea. Yeah. Um, and then we over are overestimated and underestimated in the post 9-11 war in Iraq. Yeah. You know, so it goes both ways. So if our training is giving a better than the real world look, that's a good problem to have. Yeah. Well, and you brought up a good point too. It's not a numbers game, right? It's it's a quality over quantity, 
you know, and there's that old joke. I don't know if it's really true, but Lennon said, you know, quantity has a quality all its own. But uh, if you don't train this stuff, especially when it gets to aviation, if you don't practice it, if you don't get the flight hours, you don't get the budget to support the maintenance, it doesn't matter how many airplanes you have. It doesn't matter how many pilots you have. You can't use it properly. True. Uh, and if you're going, if this is a full up hot war, numbers do matter. So, you know, people are like, yeah, yeah the, the Chinese are not as good as us, but where we have a hundred, they have 800. Right. You know, whether it's fast patrol boats, you know, we have LCS and they have, uh, their own class of kind of LCS like, but they, they exceed us in numbers. So you're like, well, we have this precision targeting. We have distributed lethality and we have all this G whiz stuff. Okay, that'll work for the first wave, but then here comes the second wave. Yeah. You know, so it's both. Mm -hmm. um, and we have to be cognizant of both because we can just dismiss the threat by going, oh, no, you know, look at this cool stuff we've got. And we can go to the trade shows and be blown away by the simulators and all of the stuff, the glossy brochures that the defense contractors are handing us. And go, oh, yeah, there's no way that the Chinese have this kind of stuff. And that's true for the first phase of the battle. But then defense in depth is a concept that matters. And so we have to keep both things in mind. Yes, I'd rather have an F-35 than a J-20. But I don't want to go a single F-35 against 20 J-20s. Right. Right. Because yeah. Yeah. one of them is going to get oh. through and he's going to gun me. And guess what? A, Stealth doesn't work against bullets. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You only need, they only need to get one through. Well, exactly. and going back to Ukraine, like, I guess what surprised me with, when it comes to the air war is, you know, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but there's not a lot of area. And so when you were talking about the, the, the ghost of Kiev and, and all that stuff and, and, you know, being able to take off, do some fighting and then come back and do a quick turn. Um, I just, you know, I don't have a good concept of air warfare and the amount of space that it takes to actually do this stuff. But it's fascinating to me that they're able to get this much stuff going on in such a short, you know, such a small area, you know, because I'm, you know, I'm thinking about it. You're in an F-14. You're looking hundreds of miles away on a radar and all this jazz. I mean, all this stuff is happening right there. You're taking off and you're in the fight. Yeah, uh, that is impressive. And again, this is where this notion of something like the ghost of Kiev struck me as potential possible because of the the small environments and this quick kills and then get out of there and go down low. And, you know, so these hundred mile setups that we trained to were, were not a thing there, you know? Yeah. And, and so um, I am fascinated by that. Um, I mean, what, what is the size Ukraine is the size of what Rhode Island or something, you know, it's not huge. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I, I agree. I'm 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 kind of fascinated by this this sort of warfare that is very tactical in nature. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and then on the helicopter front, I mean we've seen a lot of video of, you know, initial stages there were these air assaults of Russian troops into Ukraine and then later we see these these daring raids of, of helicopters crossing into Russian territory and attacking these supply depots and stuff. So yeah, it's from an air standpoint, it's just fascinating. The, the it's, it's, it's a conventional war, but fought in such a tight 
you know, a knife fight type scenario that it's nothing that it's certainly nothing that I ever thought about or uh, it sounds like you guys certainly never trained for either. No, um, we don't. We don't because this is, you know, very, very asymmetric in nature. Um, yeah. And if you're going to fight this kind of war, your defense budget doesn't need to be $750 billion, $800 billion, right? Um, yeah. So not to be cynical about it, but, you know, the other elements that have that have been fascinating uh, is the way that this invasion coalesced unified NATO and the way that particularly Americans have supported uh, the Ukrainian military. You know, so yeah. high Mars uh, patrol vehicles, r- you know, ribs for their special ops guys in terms of riverine ops, counter artillery uh, radars, good old howitzers, you know, all of the stuff that we've given them has been very effective. Nice. And the other thing that's that's makes this effective is the Ukrainians know what they need. It's not like, you know, you and I have experienced in Afghanistan. And I know we were always frustrated by the ANA, right? Because they would just like be these pieces of clay that didn't know what they needed. Right. You know, you hear the mystique of the warlords and Mujahideen and then you're dealing <laughs> with these guys and you're like, come on, you know, and they shoot themselves in the foot. I was on one one uh, air assault where the only shot fired was the ANA guy shot himself in the foot, uh, you know, one wounded and uh, no Taliban. They they ran off as we flew in the in the age 47s. But, um, you know, so with with that as the comparison the ukrainians are super awesome and this is a tough part of the world you know they've been at war like they like to point out for eight years plus they never stopped fighting and uh so you know this is a hard land you know winter is coming and uh they they are a a tough people so give them the right weapons and they're going to use them properly or if you don't give them the right weapons they're going to make them themselves. And this is what we're talking about with these octocopters that they built. When the Chinese built ones they were using were getting exploited by this software that Chinese made software that is for law enforcement purposes that allows you to know where the operator is when they're flying a drone. Mm. You know, that's, it's uh, called Airscope. And, uh, you know, police, state troopers, use that when there's a bad actor with a drone, they know where that guy is. Uh, but unfortunately, if you're going to use this in warfare, the Russians know where the Ukrainian operator is. Right. And so they built their own that can't be exploited like that. And these things are very effective. You hmm. know, they, as we've already described, they get their SU-24s out of their, their version of the boneyard. And now they're up and flying again. And everybody thought their Air Force was grounded. It's not. You know, yeah. and, and uh, they're on the move. And, and in my latest episode that I, I just posted, just made live, um, this interview with David Axe, they, there's this footage taken from the ground of this SU-24 hauling ass at treetop level over the front. You know, um, so that's a moto show of force for the guys on the ground, but it's also very effective. So yeah. if I'm the Russians and I'm like, yeah, we proved that Ghost of Kiev was – BS and we basically shot their air force down and now I see this I'm like oh this ain't good you know these guys aren't giving up um in fact where are where's our air force well 
if you show up, we're going to shoot it down with the stingers that the Americans gave us yeah. and some of these other kick-ass surface-to-air missile systems. Um, and plus, we're going to target you with HIMARS. And so maybe just go away. And the, and so advantage yeah. Ukraine. Yeah. Well, that's, th- th- I'm glad you brought that up because that was the other thing I wanted to talk to you about. You know, you grew up in a time of – uh, the Cold War fighting against the, the, the Russian threat. And one of the biggest things that the Russian, you know, the Soviet Union had was their air defense. I mean, for every type of air defense system that the U.S. has, the, the Russians have like five, you know, they just have a ton of different, these layered systems and all this stuff. Um, we've seen video of those things just flat out just not working, like missiles taking off and crashing back into the platform. I've seen multiple videos of that, and it wasn't the same thing. Um I mean, what's your takeaway from from all of that? Because these aren't like old second-rate systems either. I mean, these are some of their newer pieces of equipment that are just failing. Yeah, I think back. this is back to the, the maintenance accounts and the yeah. training accounts, you know. Um, they, I mean, Russians have a fifth-generation fighter, right, the Su-57, as seen in Top Gun Maverick. Right. right. It's an amazing airplane. And that move it does against Maverick as he and Rooster are trying to fly out in the Tomcat is a real move. Um, hmm. Unfortunately, the Tomcat move that Maverick does is not a real move. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that's another story. That, that's, well, that's how uh, good he is. Gris, yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. I, I want to believe <laughs> that. Right. Um, but if basically you do what he did, nose up in an F-14A without DFCS, and split the throttles and boot the rudder into the direction of the yaw, you're going to immediately put the airplane into a flat spin. Uh, but, okay, this is Hollywood. Got to love it. Um, so, um, again, on paper, as we watch the promo videos on YouTube put out by MIG or Sukhoi or whomever, um, we're like, oh, my God, this threat is amazing. You know, we've had whole episodes dedicated to the uh, the felon, you know, and how kick-ass this airplane is. It looks badass. When you take a whole view of how the Russians do defense acquisition and how they prioritize budgets, it, it turns out to be not that scary. You know, you'll see an SU-57 at the Moscow Air Show, or maybe even it goes to Farnborough. It'll do the demo. You're like, oh, my God. But... The reason they do that is to try to get foreign militaries interested in buying this airplane, and that's how they fund the airplane. Their government isn't right. investing in defense accounts to the degree that we are. So this is what we're seeing. So, yeah, they've got awesome across the board from their nuclear program to their Navy. Again, it's a shadow of its Cold War self, but they do have some impressive Surface ships, submarines, airplanes, a big standing army on paper. But then you go against this third world country and you believe it's going to be like unfair, like Russia punching kids coming off the short bus. But that's not what it is. That's not what it is at all. And and that's, I guess, just like in sports. That's why you play the game. Well, I know we've been having a lot of technical issues um, and I appreciate you uh you putting up with them i don't know what's been going on but hopefully i can splice all this together um yeah no doubt it's gonna be it's giving me something to do while i'm on the road 
But uh, I do want to finish up with just kind of plug your channel. So I'm sure 10 years ago, five years ago, certainly 20 years ago, well, it didn't even exist 20 years ago, but you would have never thought you're going to be a full-time YouTuber. Um, but you've got a fascinating channel and you kind of talk about a lot of things. And uh, I mean, what do you got planned in the future for that? Just continue to do what you're doing. You got anything new that you want to do with no, it? No, I think I'm going to continue to do what I'm doing, which is, as you've described, a, a wide variety of things. So at its core, it's a naval aviation, even an F-14 channel. That's how it started. Um, but then I've opened the aperture to include aviation history, to include current events, most acutely the war in I in Ukraine. Um, I want to cover defense budgets. I want to cover emerging technologies. Um, I've started this series called What Makes This Plane Great, which is going to sort of profile any number of airplanes throughout history. Uh, and people seem to be enjoying that so far. So I'm just excited about being able to focus on my YouTube channel. And as you said, I'm a full-time YouTuber now. And if you told me, to your point, 10 years ago, hey, this is going to be your job, <laughs> I would have wondered how that yeah. how that flies going by my wife, for one thing, but um, how that how that even works, you know. So um, I'm excited about it. I very much appreciate the support from subscribers and viewers and uh, look forward to shifting into the next gear as we go forward here. Well, like we've talked about uh, through text, you know, I've just started, we play DCS, Digital Combat Simulator. We both dabble in that. I guess, you were saying you play it every day now. I do. I do. And I love it. It's great. It's not yeah, a game. It's a, lot of fun. it's a simulator. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I have been dabbling in the, uh, the F-14 lately. Uh, I'm right. still working on my carrier landings. I cannot refuel in the air at all, but I, th I think I know what I'm doing wrong. So I got to play with it a little bit, but, uh, yeah, I, th I think you and I need to get together. We'll go on stream. Let's do it. You can yell at me. Yeah, yeah I'd love to do that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think we'll do it. I, I've, I've learned some techniques from, from my guy, Tricker, um, yeah. who, who is a rails ball flyer. And also he's a first uh, look, first plug kind of in-flight refueling guy, too. Um, yeah, but I'd love to do that. The, the, the bottom line with refueling uh, is you got to set, trim the airplane up, put the wings at 50 and trim it up before you start to do slow, steady closure on, on the probe. And also don't yeah. stare at the basket. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. those are, and this is just like real life, by the way. This is, I, it, yeah. I, that's the same thing I would say to a nugget pilot uh, mm -hmm. or a rag student, you know. So, again, this is the beauty of DCS. It is real. Yeah, I um, I, I think the wings. I think that's what got me. Is I is somebody was telling me yesterday, you got to sweep the wings and, and to the certain setting and all this stuff. So yeah, I got I'd play around with that today if I get a chance. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Well, let's do it. Yeah. I'd love to fly on your wing and and yeah. mess around. That'd be great. Yeah, we'll do that when I get back from this next trip. We'll uh, we'll set something up. I think that'll be a lot of fun. Okay, like that that. Be. Um, and then one day we'll we'll let you graduate to the Apache and then we'll. we'll I would love to do that, that too. too. I, I yeah. I'm a huge fan. Because of what I did in yeah. Afghanistan, the Apache um, helped a lot when when I spent my month there as an embedded journalist with the 101st Airborne. Yeah, very cool. Well, thanks so much for uh, for chatting with me, and it's fascinating to hear. I, like I said, you you followed what's been going on in Ukraine um, mainly because it's your job now. I mean, that's what you, you you're kind of doing. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, it's good to hear some of your thoughts. And I, I think we'll, I'm sure, talk again about it here in the future. I hope. Uh, anytime. Enjoy it, Casmo. I do want to say a big thank you to Ward, of course, for coming onto the show, but a big thank you for the Patreon supporters that keep this show going. And if you're interested in becoming a Patreon supporter, you can find the link down in the show notes below. And, of course, a free way to support the show is to leave a rating, leave a comment, if you're able to, on whatever you listen to this podcast on, uh, particularly Apple, which it looks like most of you do listen to. Uh, but you could leave a comment and a rating down there that's really helpful for the show and helps out with that algorithm. But again, if you do want to support through Patreon, check out the link below. We are going to be doing a uh, question and answer period here soon. And now that I've got a little bit more established with my work schedule and a better laptop to do some editing and some other type things that I can do, uh, we'll look to do some uh, some more live events with people. Uh, even when I'm on the road, I'll have that capacity. So. You can check that out again through the link down below at Patreon, uh, the Low Level Hell podcast. Well, thanks all for listening, and we will talk to you again soon. Take it easy. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.